There goes all the energy. For those of you that are parents, thanks for having kids. You guarantee the longevity of the church. It's exciting. Before we, uh, before we get into Advent, um, I would like to say just a word about the basic theology class that Mark mentioned. We have one starting uh, January 8th, Wednesday night. It'll be uh, from 6 to 8, I believe it is. There's a sign-up out there on the welcome table. Child care is provided. Now, normally, when we mention the word theology, I already saw half of you fall asleep. Wake back up, okay? Theology is the study of God. And if this is boring, this is more of a statement about me than you, okay? So I'll take responsibility for that. We are going to go through in this class, we're going to do two parts, five weeks and then five weeks, and we're going to explore the fundamental theological statements of the church and our own faith statement, which you can find on our website. For those of you that are members, I know that you read that and signed it. Um, We're going to take a look at what do we believe and why. It'll be uh, interactive as a class. Part of the time I'll be explaining things. Sorry about that. You have to understand some of it, and a lot of time we'll have discussion around the tables. And the goal is to help you deepen your walk with the Lord, to get a better grasp of what we believe, and more importantly, why is it important? What difference does it make if we, what we believe about this Bible? It makes a huge difference. And so these statements that we've come up with as a church are very important. So we'll look at the formulation of the statement, how the church put the words together, and what do the words mean? Words are very important. So in our own statement, the words are very important. So I'd like to invite you to come. Second thing I'd like to do is invite you into a process that I do every year. I'd like to invite you as a congregation to consider reading the Bible next year. I read the Bible every year. I have for years and years. And um, I'd like to invite you to join me in that. We're not going to have a particular program or book. or uh, We do have a book, a companion to go along with the books if you want to, to give you a little bit of background. Those are available. You'll hear more about that later. But if you have a smartphone or a tablet, uh, you probably have a Bible reading program on it. If not, we can, we'll, we'll make it available to you. They're free. You can download them. We'll give you a paper copy if you want that. You can read it in whatever order you want. You can read it backwards if you want. It's okay with me. I'm just interested that you get into the text so you get used to the words and the language and some of the things we've talked about. For instance, being a blessing to the nations. And you'll notice the word Gentiles, nations, peoples, all through the book, all through from beginning to end. And if you can't understand some of it, that's okay, join the clubs. A lot I can't understand. It does get confusing. But I'd like to invite you to join me in that process. Just read the Bible uh, next year, starting January 1st. Okay, if you have your Bibles, you might want to pull them out. We're going to get into them in just a minute, or your smartphone or tablet or whatever you have. We are in the season of Advent, and um, this is a, it's a fantastic time. This is a time when God breaks into our world. This is a time when God decides to become one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it means. So God decides to become a human and does something very interesting. He decides to experience something he's never experienced, what it means to be us. Well, at the same time, by him doing that, it gives us the opportunity to learn who he is because we can relate to him, we can connect to him, we can see him. Um, John 1 says that no one has seen God at any time, but the the only begotten one, Jesus, he has revealed him. 
So when you see Jesus, you have seen God. In fact, Jesus said that to the disciples. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, God the Father said to uh, Moses, if I were to reveal myself to you, you would die. So it's an act of kindness and grace that God would find a way to reveal himself to us in a way that protects us. It's really what we do as parents. We protect our children, the way we disclose ourselves to them, right? Um, as they're younger, there are many things we don't tell them. As they get older, we tell them more and more. And that's kind of the story of Advent. So this is a great time. It's a time of anticipation. We've used that word. We look forward to a week and a half when the, uh, when the Lord breaks into our world. That's what Advent is all about. It's a great time of the year. And we've designed all these services to prepare you for that. This is the third Sunday of Advent. We're focusing on peace today. So we lit the third candle. Today we're going to take a look at Isaiah's um, prophecy in Isaiah 9. You heard it read this morning. It's one of the famous prophecies that connects us to Christmas and to the Messiah Jesus. So we're going to take a look at this in detail because we usually snip out, we cut out one part of it, but the whole prophecy is very fantastic. It's amazing. Let me set the background for you in uh, Isaiah 9. In 733 B.C., the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdoms, the northern regions of Israel. Some of you may have a, bio, a map in your Bible. You can look at it, and you'll see that at the very northern part of the kingdom is the uh, tribe of um, Zebulun and Naphtali. And we will, we will see those. Um, they're going to reappear in just a minute. But as the, as the Assyrians came into the northern part of the kingdom and began, to, uh, began their military conquest, to take over, it, be moved, it became a very dark time. The Assyrian invasions, they brought food shortages. The uh, marauding armies were never very nice in the ancient world, and this is no different. So the Assyrians, they brought food shortages, they brought hunger, they created a lot of anger with the people. It's hard for us to picture what it would be like to be occupied, isn't it? Because we've never been occupied, not in our lifetime, and we don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like for people to come in and steal all of our stuff and take us hostage. And um, whatever prosperity we might have had is gone. We don't know what it's like to be brutally treated. We don't know what it's like to be abused and beaten, treated as slaves, treated as insignificant and nobodies. And the Assyrians were there pretty much to enlarge their nation and their territory and take whatever loot they could. And uh, basically they're saying, we're stronger than you, so we're going to take what you have. Very common in the ancient world. It's hard for us to picture that. It's a dark time. You get the, can I get the picture? So they're coming into the northern kingdom, northern parts of Israel. Israel blamed their king, rightfully so. We'll read that in just a second. But they also blamed God. That was the mistake. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 8, verse 19, before the prophecy, to give you the context. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists, this is God speaking to the nation. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? That's a reasonable request. Why don't you just inquire directly of God rather than go to a medium? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instructions and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Hear that word? If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. If they don't have light, what do they have? 
darkness. If you want to help your children understand this, at nighttime, close the drapes, turn on all the lights, and leave it pitch dark, and then light one candle. And you have captured this metaphor from beginning uh, to the end of the Bible, from creation to new creation. Darkness to light. That's what Christianity is. They have no light. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And they will look upward and they will curse their king and their God. They wrongly accused God because God had predicted, he had prophesied, he had promised, if you rebel against me, if you walk away, if you turn your back on me, this is what is going to happen. Later on, Isaiah is going to say, when you hear language that you can't understand, know that my judgment has come upon you because that's an army that came to take you hostage. And you have been removed from the land which I gave you as a gift. You've been deported. You've been hauled off to another country. Then Isaiah goes on. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's the shape of the northern kingdoms, the northern regions of Israel that Isaiah is going to speak into. That's, the, that's what's going on. The picture is one of total darkness, destruction, horror, horror beyond your dreams. To lose your livelihood, to lose your peace, to lose your security, to lose your independence. If you are spiritually awake, to realize that you have lost grace. It's a tough place to be. Tough place. Well, um, God's not going to leave him in the dark. Look in chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, I love it. If you look in your maps, Zebulun and Naphtali are the two tribes at the northern part. They were hit the hardest, and they endured crushing defeats. So he speaks to them first. This region, the northern part, was known as Galilee. That's a familiar word to many of you. And it was a melting pot. It's a place where the Jews and the Gentiles had learned to live together. So Jews and Gentiles both inhabited the northern regions of Israel. Uh, lots of both, both of them. Despite, despite the fact that Israel had rejected God, he planned to give them light again. And he starts with the word, nevertheless. Even though you have rejected me, and even though you have been crushed, even though you have been um, experienced destruction beyond words, even though that has happened, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Nevertheless, it's such an important word, isn't it? As disobedient as you have become, nevertheless, something good's going to happen. Beginning in verse 2, the actual prophecy starts. In fact, in your Bibles, you may notice there's a completely different font and different indentation, a different style of writing the words. This is letting you know now these are the words of the prophecy. And something very interesting happens here. There's a switch in the verb tense from present to a form of the past tense. Up until now, Isaiah and God are describing the reality of what's going on. And then in the prophecy, he switches to a past tense. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is a form of the past tense. By the way, this is very common because what's happening here 
we were being given a divine perspective. Picture yourself in this brutal economy, this brutal occupied state, and God invites you to come sit with him in heaven. You're sitting in the throne room, and you get a glimpse of what's happening on the earth, but now you're seeing it from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, it is already accomplished. Look what he says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Who are the people walking in darkness? These people that have been oppressed and crushed. Jews and Gentiles. Last week you mentioned that people living in darkness was a reference to the Gentiles. Here it's a reference to both. They're living together. The people living in darkness or walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. Now, they didn't experience this at that second that they read this, but a light has dawned. We're going to see in just a moment who that is and what that means. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as soldiers rejoice when dividing the plunder. So joy all of a sudden enters the picture. This very dark and gloomy place, joy has entered the picture. Both the farmer and the soldier are now pictured as rejoicing from the fruit of their labor. You could picture the soldiers when they've gone out to battle and they win the victory. First of all, they're alive. That brings a lot of excitement. But then they get to divide the plunder. And there's excitement. And they bring it back to their families and they bring it back to the people in their nation. It's a different world than we lived in today. A different world back then than we live in today. But you can kind of sense the joy. This is the joy that's coming. Well, then he goes on and he says in verse 4, he introduces Midian. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Why does he bring up Midian? Well, that's a story that would have been known to the Jewish people. You may not remember it with clarity, but it comes out of Judges 6 and 7. It's the story of Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? where uh, the Midianites had overrun the nation of Israel. In fact, uh, Judges 6 and 7 describes the Midianites as everywhere, and they're enemies of God. And so in the book of Judges, the people did what they thought was right in their own eyes, and they kept wandering away, and God kept bringing judges to bring them back. They'd wander away. So they wandered away, and these Midianites are everywhere, and God selects Gideon, so you remember the fleece and the whole story there, to go after them. Well, first of all, Gideon didn't want to do it. He didn't doubt that God wanted him to do it. He just didn't want to, okay? And so uh, there's a little conversation with God and anger in there. It's worth reading sometime. So then Gideon says, okay, well, if I'm going, then I'm going to take a group with me. And so God begins to whittle it down. Do you remember how many he ends up with? 300. 300. What? Are you kidding me? You want me to defeat this whole army with 300 people? Yes. That's what God said, yes. So the, the Midianites are pictured as overrunning all of Israel. Their boots, verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be, defi- will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Well, let me back up to verse 4. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, they're slaves now, and so they're carrying a a yoke, a heavy burden. They're, They're in chains now. The rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, 
and every garment rolled in blood, all this horrible stuff will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The Assyrians are now pictured with boots that trample all across the land. They're victorious. They crushed Zebulun and Naphtali. Their garments are covered with the blood of the people that they killed. See the image? Terrible place to be. It's a terrible image, isn't it? And guess what? It's all going to become fuel for the fire. It will come to an end. Hope and promise is now in sight as the boots and the garments are going to be used to keep them warm, feed them. But how will this happen? Here's the second important word in verse uh, 6. For, the famous verse, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is how God is going to turn this horrible mess around. And that's what we've got to take a look at, this whole concept. First thing he says is a child will be born. This is probably a repeat of what he said in chapter 7. The famous passage on a virgin will give birth and, uh, to a son. You're familiar with that one at Christmas? And this image keeps going all throughout Isaiah. In fact, we'll see a couple of them in just a minute. That uh, something is coming. A son is coming. A child. For to us a child has been born. Now, there's a contrast between Midian and Gideon and the child. Because in the story of Gideon, 300 men defeated this entire army. A child is going to turn around this horrible destruction. The underdog. Who would have thought 300 men could beat an, could beat an army? But God did it, didn't he? And this raises a principle in Scripture that we see all the way through. God often makes sure that the odds are not stacked in his favor. So that way you can see his power. What did he say to Israel? I didn't choose you because you were the largest nation. I chose you because you were the smallest. It's very common. It's very consistent that God makes sure the odds are stacked against him so that you can see his power. If 300 men can beat the, Median, the Midianites, what can a child do if strengthened by God? See the picture? Connect the dots? So there's a contrast here. The comparison, you see it again with the uh, bar in verse 4. They've got this bar across their shoulders and they're oppressed with the weight. But what do we learn about this child? Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His shoulders. So the bar is being lifted off of our shoulders and it's placed on the shoulders of this child, this government. It's amazing. And he will be called, and we have four titles here that give us an indication of this child. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What do they mean? When we think of the word counselor, we think of somebody that you go to for counseling, right? Typically how it's used in our culture. Not so in this culture. They haven't even conceived of that kind of stuff yet. Counsel was what kings did. The king decided when you went to battle, when you didn't go to battle. 
You just hope that your king was right if he's going to lead you out into battle. Because if he's wrong, there's a terrible price to pay. So the best rulers and the best leaders gave wise counsel on what to do. We talked uh, earlier about the wise men. Remember that? They gave counsel to the kings. So the king would go to his advisors and say, what should we do? Should we attack or shouldn't we not attack? And he looked at the council and made decisions based on the council. We hope the council is wise. Well, this little child is a wonderful counselor. He gives excellent counsel. We see this in chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Well, there's another one of these prophets, prophecies again. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So we have the spirit of the Lord. We have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might or power. There it is. This child will know what to do. Won't even need to seek counsel. He's a wonderful counselor. He knows by virtue of who he is what to do, this little child. He's a mighty God. The mighty God is pictured throughout Isaiah as a warrior God, one who is mighty. He is a God who is mighty. He, these are all images of king, by the way, being a king. This is a king that you can trust. When he says, go to battle, you are going to win. You don't have to guess. So what did he say in Ephesians 6? Put on the full armor of God. Stand firm. What did he say at the cross? It is finished. The victory has been won. That language is scattered all throughout the Bible. We serve a warrior king who knows exactly when and how to lead us into battle. Then you have the everlasting father. When you look at the word father throughout the Isaiah, you have the idea of a, someone who provides protection for a family or for a larger group. So here we have an eternal, a father who's everlasting, someone who's a protector of his people. So think about these images now, all three of them. As a king, he is able to give perfect counsel on what and when to do it. As a mighty God, uh, that's a wonderful counselor. As a mighty God, he's pictured as a warrior God. He's one who is mighty, one who is trustworthy. We stand in his strength, don't we? We rely on his strength. We have no other option. We die otherwise. As everlasting father, he's a king who protects his people. And then the final one is prince of peace. The king establishes a safe environment for his people. That's us. That's what a king was expected to do. Provide protection. A safe place. He is the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Wow. Of the increase of his government, by the way, it doesn't matter which country you live in. Every government has some similarities. They all charge taxes. That's one. And the taxes become burdensome, right? They struggle to make decisions and do them well. It doesn't matter what form of government you're in. That's what God said in the Old Testament. If you really want a king and you don't want me to be your leader, then this is what's going to happen. It doesn't matter what country you go to. We all struggle with this. But of this child, the increase of his government and the peace that comes about, it will never end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. 
He will be a just God and he will do what is right. He will make things beautiful that are ugly. He will repair the things that are broken. He will bring healing to the hurting. All the things that we look forward to. That's what this child is going to do. From that time on and forever, forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's the Lord's power that's going to make it happen. By the way, this imagery is found, we'll see at Christmas Eve, in the story of uh, uh, Mary. And the angel speaks to her. And she says, how is this going to happen? And he talks about the power of God is going to pull this off. So see this language again. This is God's power. Who would have thought these people are sitting here, occupied, having been overrun by the uh, Assyrians? Who would have thought that a child would rescue them? His kingship is made clear. I'm going to read to you one more verse out of Matthew. This shows you what Matthew did with this passage. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Now we know where Galilee is. It's up in the northern parts of Israel. It's where Zebulun and Naphtali are. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. So he has located himself in Zebulun and Naphtali, in that region. And he did this, verse 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, to the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The sun's beginning to come up, and the light is dawning. So when Jesus walked through the northern regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, he did that to fulfill the promise made through Isaiah 600-something years earlier. You connect the dots? His child is Jesus. I know you know that, but I wanted you to grasp a sense of how that happened. Did he, did he, did he fix everything that was broken? When he came the first time? No. He started a process. The light has dawned. The sun's coming up. This is a picture of us, by the way. For whatever reason, God decided to reveal his glory through the church. Ephesians 3, to God be the glory in the church. That's why Christ said, blessed are the peacemakers. Christ came to bring peace. That's us. We represent him to the world. We are his ambassadors. We are the ones who bring about reconciliation. We're the ones that reflect his image and glory. We are the ones that bring about love to a, a desperate and hurting world. We're the ones that shine light in the lives of people when they can't make sense of their own lives. And we are the ones that bring about a sense of peace. I know this week we have experienced tragedy, haven't we? both locally as well as down in Denver. In fact, this is, my, this is high school that my daughter graduated from. I wish it wasn't that way, but I have confidence one day that it, will be, uh, that it will be taken care of. And part of that journey is our responsibility as peacemakers to teach people about true peace. If you're struggling with that, I, I, don't, know the, I don't know who the shooter was in, in Denver, 
Littleton. Uh, I don't know who that is, but if you know somebody that's struggling that deeply, tell them about the Lord. We can, I like to think of it this way. When I have the opportunity to talk to somebody that doesn't know the Lord, I'm confident of several things. Number one, the Lord loves them far more deeply than I do. And number two, he's been at work in their lives much longer than I have. That's what it means to go in the power and spirit of the Lord. Now, I'm not telling you this because I want you to be depressed. I want you to be alert and sober. I want you to be awake. This is Christmas. Not everybody at Christmas experiences the same level of joy that some of us do. We should be sensitive to that. Shouldn't we? We should be sensitive. Think about the singles in our midst who uh, may don't have, maybe don't have a family to celebrate with. Think about those for some reason who have lost a spouse. However that happened. Someone who has lost a child. They're right here sitting in our midst. And you know them that aren't here. What does it mean to bring that sense of peace and hope to them at this time of the year? So I'm not trying to depress you. I'm trying to give you hope that the Lord came the light dawn, the sun's rising, and we're moving in a very different direction. And uh, we are part of that. We are his peacemakers. We have a lot of power. That's what Christmas is all about. So in a week and a half, when we uh, celebrate Christmas Eve together, and then you wake up in the morning, the presents get opened and all the fun things that happened, enjoy it. Be grateful for a Lord who uh, recognized our plight and our distress and came to rescue us. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward to take the offering. This is a Benevolence Sunday as well. By the way, Linda, thank you for playing for us. We're very blessed by you. Every third Sunday of the month, we take a Benevolence offering, and uh, we're going to pass the, the offering for our general offering. And by the way, thank you for whatever God puts on your heart to give. Hope you know that we love you. We do deeply. But then we also, if you want to give money to our benevolence fund, over here we have a kind of a lantern-looking black thing, and over there, receptacles. And then right outside the door on the table, there's a third one. We use the benevolence monies to help people that are in need in our county. We have a benevolence committee. They serve a vital function because there's an overwhelming amount of need, and they sort through that and make decisions on how to use that money well. And uh, we've used it to help lots of needy uh, folks, families and singles both. So if the Lord puts it on your heart, you can put it there. And if the Lord puts it on your heart to give here, we're grateful. We just love you and thank you for what you give. Let me pray for this. Father, we do lift up this offering that we're about to receive. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with these people. Lord, I believe that you've already put on their hearts what you want them to give, so I pray that you would bless them, Lord, because of their sacrifice. Our commitment to you remains the same. We will use it faithfully to reflect your glory to a world that's hurting and in need of help. Thanks for taking care of all of our needs. In Jesus' name, amen.